entering the Freedom Hut. The politics of the lockdown laid bare. New projections for the COVID-19 death toll. A new coronavirus mutation. Beware of COVID toes. Fauci will not take it to the House. And VDH on experience versus credentials. That and more coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Cinco de Mayo, which I'm saying properly for the first time perhaps ever, as I uh, have it has been explained to me many times that my my tendency to say Sanco is from learning French and not Spanish in school. It is, in fact, Cinco de Mayo. And uh, producer Mark and I are not going to be able to celebrate with margaritas today, but uh, hopefully at a point in the not-too-distant future. As I had promised a couple of months ago now, we will be having margaritas on the street in NYC in June, I hope. But that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, the speed of the opening. I mean, we've got a lot to focus on, but I also have, I have some questions for which I'm going to start <clears throat> demanding answers. And, and here's the first one that, that really comes to mind here, or, or maybe it's, it's an observation and I'm wondering when someone's going to explain to me how I'm wrong or, or why I'm right. The correlation between being anti-Trump and wanting to extend economy-crushing lockdowns should not exist, but it very clearly does. That's my, that's my, my big moment of what the heck is going on here. Today. Now, I'm, I'm not new to this. I've known this was happening for a while. But I think this is one of those uh, one of those truths, one of those observations that while it's obvious, it's also unspoken. And in fact, there are many people who do not want it to be spoken of at all and will try to refute it. will say that it's not true. Why should there be any correlation? This is a massively complicated, enormously consequential decision at the at the national and state and local level about how quickly to reopen but if you hate Trump, there's about a 95% chance, as of whether you're a politician, a journalist, a journo, there's about a 95% chance, from what I'm seeing, that you want the lockdowns to keep going. And the question that they won't answer for us right now is, is for one thing, we were told that this was to flatten the curve. As I've been saying to you, that has happened, although it's not clear that the social distancing that we've engaged in has really been the reason for it. If you look at the curves in various countries from extreme lockdown, now there's a difference of degree, but I'm talking about the trajectory. The trajectory in various countries seems to be quite similar, irrespective of the degree of lockdown. You have a rise and fall after a period of about four or five weeks. From from uh, and, and you have a, a steep rise to the peak of the disease and then it starts to fall off, although it's not falling off as quickly as many had said it would or be believe that it would. That brings me to, for example, Dr. Scott Gottlieb 
who has been making the rounds these days, who had this pathway for reopening America project, right? We had that. I, I walked you through it here on the show. He was on CBS News uh, Face the Nation, and he said that the concerning thing here is that we're looking at the prospect that this may be a persistent spread. Uh, 20,000 to 30,000 new reported cases per day, despite intense lockdown orders in most states. While mitigation didn't fail, I think it's fair to say it didn't work as well as we expected. If this wasn't good enough, a national lockdown policy where we have businesses not able to operate, trillions and trillions of dollars of expense, all the social and psychological baggage and damage that has been self-imposed on us as a society, although really put on us by the elected political class, the work from home, still well-paid journo media and our public uh, public intellectual public scientist class right? public policy scientist class. And they're the ones that said we had to do this. And now we're looking at it and they're telling us, well, we might just kind of have to keep doing this for the foreseeable. Uh, if, if this has not stopped, let, let's let's take this down to its most basic elements. I know that there are smarmy imbeciles who can't think for themselves. Most of them are Democrats that you'll see on this issue, but there are Republicans, too. If you are a conservative who hates Trump, you also think that lockdowns should be extended. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like this issue, which it, it, we have run the experiment for people who hate Trump, is everything about him? The answer is yes. As long as he's president, nothing else can matter to them, really. Not mass death, not the destruction of the economy. Those things can matter, but not as much as Trump. Trump is the single most important issue to them. It's the thing that uh, it's the thing around which they fix everything else. He is their psychological North Star. He is their sun and their moon. I mean, it's it's maddening because we're supposed to be able to have a more adult conversation here about what we should be doing as a country. But that's not what's happening. This is increasingly falling into just the most rank partisanship, uh, the most completely intellectually dishonest approach from the left about what they really want here. But let, let, let's take a step back for a moment. Let's boil it, because I, I, I know that the libs like to say, you're not a public policy. Well, actually, I'm a public policy expert in some ways. But you're not an epidemiologist, and you're not a public health specialist. And, oh, oh you know, okay, okay. Right. Fine. Uh, those people, and this is where we get into this, this fantastic editorial from Victor Davis Hanson, one of the, I think, one of the strongest living uh, editorial columnists out there right now. Uh, one of the strongest current Members of that of that class uh, looking at the experience that we have had of expertise versus experience. What have we seen in the last few months? What do they really know? And the report card for the people that want to wag a finger at you and say, excuse me, prol. Hey, hoi polloi, back indoors, shut your mouth. We're the smart people. We know what to do. They are wrong and wrong and wrong again. We're not supposed to pay any attention to that. How does this spread? How deadly is this? How do we stop it? How do we cure it? How do we treat it? How long until the vaccine? Should you wear a mask? 
Uh, they haven't even figured out yet, and this is what we're seeing in New York State. We're told to do the social distancing and listen to them. They can't protect nursing homes. I mean, this is where most of the fatalities, there are states where over half of all fatalities are in assisted living facilities. And this has been true in Europe as well. They can't figure out how to protect self-contained, enclosed environments full of particularly vulnerable individuals. But then they want to tell us how all the rest of us should go about this. What Gottlieb was saying there, and remember, everybody now, they're, they're all... They're all so smug when challenged, but don't let that don't let that uh, slow you down in this. Ask the questions that you need to ask. He's saying that we may have continual spread. That's another way of saying that people are going to keep dying from this disease. They're going to keep spreading. They're going to keep getting the disease. And then some percentage will keep dying from the disease no matter what we do. So looking at this and, and we were initially told to get into this posture of lockdown across the board, across the country, to make sure that our hospital, hospital capacity was not overwhelmed, we are not in danger of that, not even close. And in fact, if we were in danger of that, even in New York, why are we shutting down the a hospital in Central Park? Oh, because it was religious. And so the members of the progressive uh, community decided that it was unacceptable that that a Christian group would operate a park to minister to the sick and try to help them from dying, prevent them from dying in Central Park. And we had a hospital ship that's floated away now. I mean, I mean, I guess it's sailed away. It hasn't floated. That would be bad. Uh, And we have the Javits Convention Center shutting down which was an over a thousand bed facility the federal government created here for COVID patients. So we're, we're nowhere near overwhelming our hospital capacity. And in fact, the danger to hospitals across the country has been from lack of patients, lack of funding, lack of actual health care going on. That's what has been really the challenge for, for in, in 90 percent of the country. That's been the problem with hospitals that they've been told you're not allowed to be a hospital right now because we all have to get ready for COVID-19. And the death toll from this, that'll be a, it'll be a lagging indicator. How many people die from cancer that would have been detected? How many people missed that cancer screening? How many people didn't start chemo early enough? Whatever it may be, didn't get an early intervention for a heart condition. So people are going to die because of the lockdowns too. That's now beyond any doubt. But they have transitioned us They have transitioned us from just a little bit until we can get ready to, no, we're pretty much going to keep doing this, you know, forever. We just got word today at a report based out of a scientist from uh, uh, Los Alamos. Uh, We got word today that they uh, think or that they've proven, according to the scientists, that there's a mutation already of a much more contagious strain of COVID-19, much more contagious strain out there and that it might have mutated in Europe. And the reason the West Coast wasn't hit so badly was that the original Chinese strain, uh, the mortality rate from these, they believe, is the same. So that you have to read all the way down to the bottom, the bottom of the piece. The mortality rate's the same, but the, the spread of it is much more rapid. And the fact that it has mutated might mean that you have limited immunity, even if you get it. Uh, but... Okay, so what point the media loves to rush out there with these stories 
they're effectively, hey, everybody, we're all we're all completely out of luck. So you might as well just keep hiding under your bed and, and hope that our scientists come through with this. The same scientific community that hasn't cured the common cold is going to cure COVID-19. Maybe. I mean, I, I hope so. That would be amazing. It'd be a miracle. But I wouldn't I wouldn't hold your breath. I wouldn't want to wait on that one. But we have had lockdown and yet the virus, we, we are seeing more cases, fewer, but still still cases. How is this virus being spread if the lockdown measures are sufficient to prevent this virus from getting to people that would get it anyway? I mean, effectively, are we just making if the virus was going to spread? So we'll just use easy numbers here to 100 people. If that's the real epidemiological reach of this thing, right, that's going to get get to 100 people. Are we just making sure that it takes three months instead of two to infect 100 people? Because the public health benefit of that is certainly questionable. You might argue there's really no public health benefit of, of slow unless it's overwhelming your ability to care for, for people. But we've already shown that's not the case. They have completely shifted the strategy and you have people that are saying, no, we cannot reopen. People will die. I'm saying this again. People will die. That's right. People have been dying and people will die. And it's terrible and it's tragic. And it could happen to any one of us. It could happen to you. It could happen to me. But that has, in fact, always been true. We are all at risk from death. The risk for a vast majority of Americans, of human beings right now from this virus is manageable. It's not zero. It's not negligible. It's manageable. We need to learn to manage this as a society. And part of that means going forward with our lives. What is the alternative? Where's the timeline that suggested just keep dragging this out? Oh, we see a little spike in cases. Got to do a lockdown again. Let's flatten our economy after we flattened the curve. We've had spike in cases. Got to shut everything down again. People are still getting the virus. Going to keep getting the virus. This this policy, look, Trump knew that this was not the move. He, he did the 15 days to slow the spread was for hospital capacity. And then beyond that, it was just pressure. They just brought all this pressure and it was fine. They finally and I've been worried about this and I didn't want to say this. They finally got Trump to go against his instincts and bend the knee on this one. And he extended it 30 days beyond the 15 days. As I've said, the 15 days always made uh, enough sense to me. And I still think you can justify the 15 days to get the get the word out. You know, it would be like taking a day or two before a hurricane batting down the hatches. Right. It was just an extended version of that. But what we're seeing now isn't prepare for the coming storm. What we're seeing is a transformation, a slow but sure transformation of society, the destruction of our economy and the progressive seeing this as an opportunity to remake the state in their image. No, this cannot stand. This cannot be allowed to continue. Uh, the bad faith arguments about how you just want granny to die if you think that businesses should reopen. The science is not on the side of the people that have claimed lockdowns are the are the only answer. It wasn't even that there was a, a discussion. We couldn't even have a talk about this. It had to be lockdowns, they said. And now it has to be a series of lockdowns. Now we're talking about a second wave mutations of the virus are, are we just going to hide forever 
or are we going to allow people to be the arbiters of their own risk to get out there and to live life? How many of you have told that you could uh, you, you had a one in and, and the real number is more like one in 10,000 based on the data out of California. But if you had a one in 10,000 chance of dying from something, if you if you get the disease um, or you, you can, you know, that that's a, that's a, something you're going to take on as a risk. But you get to live your life for the next two or three years or you can have a one in a one in a million chance, maybe or one in a hundred thousand chance of dying from this. But you have to stay locked down in your home and watch American, uh, the American society, economy and way of life crumble and watch people completely lose their minds. We know the answer. This slow drag through is not sufficient. Open up businesses. What New York is doing is wrong. What other states that are dragging their feet on this are doing is wrong. The data, I don't care about I don't care about what the the so-called experts say. We can all see the numbers. The data does not support what they are saying. And people who claim that we can get to a zero risk future with this don't know what they're talking about. And increasingly, it just seems like psychotic anti-Trumpism. Once again, I don't know what else to say. That's what it looks like. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, I just want to put out a a reminder request that you let us know uh, how things are going in your part of the country and where you stand on this. And those of you that are uh, affected, either workers or small business owners, I want to hear what you think. And it, it's lonely being a skeptic on this issue these days. I mean, there are some people who will say, you know, open up uh, in the public life as, as conservatives in the media, but they won't really attack the lies around all of this. Uh, there's a little bit of a hesitancy that I'm seeing from people to ch- look, challenge the challenge the experts. If they're right, let's hear why they're right challenge them I have them explain what the real purpose is here of the continued lockdown or rather why we're going to move in phases remember the phase can always switch back so this feels more and more like a tactic of delay they're not trying to get out of the lockdown they're saying okay we'll go up we'll go down we'll go up we'll go down no that is catastrophic for society and for businesses We can handle this virus. We can't handle the imbeciles in charge making more stupid decisions. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. As those numbers come down, what do you tell the people of your state who say, "Okay, I see the numbers coming down. We got to get back to business. I've got to reopen my shop. I've got to reopen my business. I've got to start to get back to life. What's your message to those people in your state? My message is health has to come first. And if we're not extra careful about health, the economy will not improve. If people are if that's another reason testing is so important. If people are afraid, you can give money to the store owners and say, open up. But if no one's going to go out on the streets and they don't have customers, what good is it going to be? So we have to be careful. You have to err on the side of science and of caution. That doesn't mean you shut down everything uh, all the time. I think New York has issued a very careful plan. But when the president importunes a thousand protesters, those fringe group, it seems, most of them, to uh, go protest and say, open the government regardless of scientific information, that's going to hurt all of us. I'm going into stores already, going to stores pretty much uh, every other day, I'd say. 
I go do shopping for food, for sundries, for things that I need for just basic life-sustaining activities here. Paper towel, toilet paper. I'm going into stores right now. Why would I not go into stores if there were more that were open? If there were more restaurants that were open, I'd go into them too. I have a feeling I'm not alone. And I'm in New York, in the middle of New York. If you look at the, the heat map for where you had the greatest concentration of COVID-19 cases. In fact, I live right on the edge of one of, they do it by zip code usually. I live on right on the edge of one of the zip codes that had in Manhattan, one of the five boroughs, the most COVID cases by far. So I'm right here, I'm going into stores. But you, you notice how we keep seeing this change now. Right now, it's if you want to reopen the economy, you can't even reopen the economy because the economy is dependent upon people going out and they won't go out. What evidence do they have for this? Is that really true? You, you know what would make people feel more confident in going and starting to live more of their more of their lives if they saw other people able to live more of their lives and they we're not all going to drop dead. It's not all going to be the end of the world. There are risks. I'm not saying there aren't risks. But I would be out there. And I, I've just I just talked to a friend last night who, who said that uh, he has covid and or has had covid rather and said it's nasty and it can be really tough. But there are a lot of diseases out there that if you're otherwise healthy can still knock you on your butt for a week. Most notably the flu, which we just deal with year in and year out and kills tens of thousands of people. And we never shut down businesses and we never have the government telling us that we have to wear masks in public and all this other stuff. But the the uh, explanation changes every day. Right. It was it was flat in the curve for healthcare and hospital worker capacity. And now it's just give us a little more time as we figure out testing and tracing. And now people are looking at testing and tracing like me. And I'll talk more about tracing later on. And sure enough, there is no way we're going to get anywhere near the testing and tracing capacity that we're told in places like New York. And I'm sure in California, too, I'll have to see what their numbers are, is necessary for a reopen. And so now they're saying, oh, well, even if we did open now, OK, maybe the test and trace is a little bit pie in the sky with the numbers that we, we demand for a reopen. But if if test and trace uh, isn't, you know, we're going to move past that. And now we're told that even if we opened up, nobody would go. Or or even if we open up until we have the testing and tracing, no one's going to go outside. That's just, it's just not true. It's not representative of millions and millions of people across the country who would be willing, would absolutely be willing to take precautions, sure, but take uh, the day-to-day risks into their own hands of going out and living their lives. Uh, I, I want my life back. I don't want Governor Cuomo to be in charge of how I can live my life. But this is this is the problem we're seeing. You know, I was warning about this. And even some people I know very well were saying, you know, I in the, in the early stages, I had people reach out to me, listen to this show. They said, in the early stages, I thought maybe you were you're being a little bit of a, worrying too much on government overreach. Yeah. How's that looking right now? And some have come back and said, you know what? You were right. The people, especially of the state uh, statist and liberal and left wing mentality, love having additional power, want to wield that additional power and don't want to give it up. And you'll see this with the way they justify their policies. Now, do what I say 
or you're killing people. Well, that's that's not really true, right? That's that's actually not accurate. And and at any point in time, you could go out there and you could have a a cold that you don't know about and you could cough, you know, near or touch or however you you transmit it to a senior citizen and and that person could die could get pneumonia and could die from that cold. Now, I I know COVID-19 is worse than a normal cold, but I'm just saying there are risks that we all have to deal with in our day-to-day lives. And a government that is promising you no risk is like a government that is promising you total security. It's lying to you. They're lying to you. And they don't really care about you. Here is, for example, the governor of New York telling us here why you have to wear masks or else you're killing people. Play clip 13. And by the way, you don't wear a mask for yourself. You wear a mask to protect me. I wear a mask to protect you. Uh, We owe each other a certain amount of reasonableness and respect in society. Do I think local government should be enforcing it? And should there be sanctions? Yes. Yes. Uh, Because it is a public health emergency. You know, this is not just do me a favor. This is a public health emergency. And it's a statewide order that I put in place that I'm proud of. And local governments have the responsibility to enforce it. And part of their right, their legal right, is they can have a penalty or a sanction that they impose. You could literally kill someone because you didn't want to wear a mask. I mean, how how cruel and irresponsible would that be? When is that ever not going to be the case? When, when is that not going to be the case? When we go outside, we're going to wear masks forever? Because that seems to be what he's suggesting. We're not going to cure influenza anytime soon. So now is the new standard. If I don't wear a mask, I feel healthy. I have no symptoms. But I could cough on somebody. They'll never be able to prove. This is why the whole tracing thing also is, is really nonsense. And I said I would talk to you more about that. But how can you ever get past this standard? Wear a mask or you might ki- or you might be killing someone. The disease is out there and it's going to k- keep being out there. So we're all going to wear masks forever. This is stupid. I say no. I say no. Out in public, the science does not even support wearing masks. But we ignore that science now. Out in public, the risk of transmission is very, very low. And just as we've talked about getting in, you know, and they say, oh, don't compare it to cars. Oh, don't compare it. Every time you get in a car, there's a possibility you may die. Every time. You know, every time you leave your home, something could happen. You know, someone living, uh, what was it, a few blocks away from me, uh, was hit by falling debris before this whole pandemic thing happened from a building that shut down blocks and blocks and someone was killed just walking down the street. You're going to never leave your apartment again. And you'd say, well, that's ridiculous because the risk is so low. Okay. If you're 25 years old, what is the risk that you will get COVID-19 and be hospitalized and and die? Uh, It is infinitesimal. It's not zero. Then it's infinitesimal. It's very small. If you're 35 years old, it's very small. If you're 45 years old, it's small, but it's getting a little higher and so on and so forth. You go up every 10 years or so and the risk ratio changes a little bit. And instead of focusing on the most vulnerable, you know, we've been we're, we've been in lockdown for six weeks 
And still more and more and more cases in the nursing homes here in New York in particular. How is that possible? No one's allowed to visit. We're on lockdown. The incubation period for the virus, they think, is two weeks. So how are you having more and more cases inside the nursing homes if social distancing and lockdowns work? Maybe what you're finding out is that even trying to protect uh, more vulnerable populations is a challenge and that the the precautions that we're told to take all the time are deeply insufficient and always will be. But we can't even have this discussion right now. And there are there are a couple of reasons for it that have nothing to do with the virus. One is the mentality of the left, the liberals who want to control other people. And then you also have the anti-Trumpism that has become increasingly central. This is now a, a point of ideological identification. Are you pro or anti-lockdown? If you are pro-lockdown or cyclical lockdowns, continued lockdowns, you tend to be anti-Trump. If you are a supporter of the Trump administration, you want the, uh, the country to start going back to normal life. And I would just say, which side is really on the side of science and being more realistic about the world? It's definitely not the lockdown people who have been telling us all along that we can't keep locking down forever. Well, if we can't keep locking down forever, why should we lock down for another month? What's the point? What's the point? In the hopes we're going to we're going to lock down, we're going to take on all that damage so we can hope for the miracle of a cure in the next month of a therapeutic that knocks this thing out and we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not a smart bargain and we all know it. So absent that, what is the reason for the lockdown? They won't tell you. They'll just say you must want people to die. Stay safe. Stay inside. Hide under your bed. I don't want to hide under my bed anymore. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, I was hoping they would spend more time on the crisis instead of those uh, daily shows that the president put on. Uh, But the fact is uh, that we need to allocate resources for this. In order to do that, uh, any appropriations bill must begin in the House, and we have to have uh, the information to act upon. Uh, So the fact that they said we're not, we're we're too busy being on TV to come to the Capitol is, well, business as usual for them, but it is not business uh, that will be helpful uh, to uh, uh, addressing this. Yeah, I'm always wondering, too, and I'm sure you have this moment. What is Nancy Pelosi? What does she think she's saying? What? It's just it's just all it's it's like it's I know there are words, but it really just all goes through like gibberish. What is she talking about? They won't give the data for something. You know, she always has some BS objection. And the media covers for her. And we're supposed to pretend that she's a master legislator. She has some incredible skill set. She's just cunning and ruthless and will do whatever it takes to achieve power. That was true of Pablo Escobar, too. I don't think he was a business genius, believe it or not. I know people like to think these things. I remember being told by a career law enforcement officer a long time ago, you know, people like to think that the guys who work in organized crime, because you watch all these movies, you watch all these shows, and there's always the criminal mastermind. But when they've done some and they've done some studies of these guys when they're in prison, they do some some psychological and even some basic IQ testing. It turns out that no, nah, 
it's usually not a smart move to have to wonder if you're going to wake up on any given day, get shot or arrested. People find better ways. Really intelligent people usually find better ways to uh, become wealthy, influential and etc. Uh, but we're always oh the, the criminal mastermind. No, it's just if, if you're ruthless, you can get away with a lot. If you don't care. Uh, and, and then this is what I think it describes a lot of Democrat politicians, quite honestly. It's just do whatever they've got to do. It describes Joe Biden. The guy's an imbecile. He's not very smart. Never has been, never will be. We all know it. He just gives a speech and has been doing the politics thing for a long time. And, you know, he kind of yells and he looks like a politician and guy's an imbecile. But uh, I wanted to just circle back for a moment to what I've been telling you about for now many weeks, which is that we are, are approaching a test case here of what happens to this country when we are in the midst of what you would call a, a transformation into a benevolent totalitarianism. Now, I'm not sure it's benevolent, but that's what they're going to say. That's how it's being positioned. This is why you have Cuomo saying, if you're a nice person, wear a mask and we're going to make everyone wear masks on pain of fine and even imprisonment or else. How long are we going to wear masks? These masks are horrible. They're annoying. They're hard to breathe in. They make your face sweat. The thing, this is stupid. The science does not support wearing masks outside in open air, but we're all told we have to do this now because everyone's freaked out. Man, it's a, you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing this country right now, you know, is not facing a a major armed conflict. Uh, because, you know, if we had to call up, you know, we, we've gotten used to relying on a warrior class in this country. You know, it's about one to two percent of Americans who of their own volition, based on their own courage and desire to serve this country, have been fighting our wars for as long as I've been alive. Uh, you know, you, you can imagine that there are a lot of people out there who, you know, a lot of the the left wing snowflake types in particular. Mm mm. Now, no, no interest in risk or dealing with icky, scary things. Uh, we're, we're being lied to as a society that there is a, a way that the government is going to protect us from all this risk. The government has been a catastrophic failure, a catastrophic failure across the board in responding to this. Now, I don't think that it really even matters whether you had a Democrat or Republican president because of the threat we were facing and what we've been up against. I think Trump has, in general, made better decisions than you would have had with a Democrat in that same in that same spot. But it was really the CDC and state governments and the media and the whole apparatus all together and the World Health Organization and these different international Bodies that look at, you know, pandemic disease and the, the various modeling institutes for for pandemic disease. Uh, they all just insisted that we go down this this path. And they what, what exactly have they done that's helpful? What what genius plan do they come up with? Wash your hands and stay inside for months. That's the best we've got. How does it spread how do we cure it? How do we stop it? When will this be done? They don't have any of those answers. And yet, there's always this appeal to authority from the left, in particular. There are Republicans, too. I, you know, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a long, neat ideological partisan lines issue, but there's an overall, there's an overall correlation. 
And uh, we're just not willing as a society, it seems, to I keep calling it an adult conversation, but look at things for what they are and understand we have to we have to move forward. You know, we have to take responsible risks into account. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's that time, everybody. We're joined by our buddy, Mr. David Harsanyi. He is at National Review, and he has thoughts on many of the things. He is down in the general swamp area of D.C. Mr. Harsanyi, what's up? Uh, not much. How's it going for you, Buck? I mean, the lockdowns continue, and I'm waiting for someone to explain how we're not just going to be in one perpetual lockdown, given the newest the newest trend seems to be uh, we're, we're going to put all these metrics in place. We're never really going to reach them, but we're going to keep talking about how we're getting close to them. And then if we have a day where we're not reaching them, we're going to go back to shutting down again, as if that's not going to just collapse anyone's confidence in a recovery or in the economy. So I'm, I'm starting to get pretty frustrated with the scene. I got to be honest with you. Yeah, same here. I mean, I see a lot of people making the argument online that, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, if anyone's life is in danger, if anyone's life is in danger because we uh, restart the economy, even in to whatever extent, um, that that immediately essentially makes you a, uh, a murderer, you know, <laughs> and that yeah. we can't, uh, you know, we're so risk averse now that we can't put anyone's life in danger through because of a virus. And, and that's just not the standard we use for basically anything we do in the world from the things we eat to driving to, to just being alive. So I, I don't know how that, I mean, I think I do know how that debate's going to shake out. When the American people feel like it's time to be out, they're probably just going to emerge. And uh, I'm not sure that the government will be able to stop them. And, and I know that people, not. people don't like whenever I bring this up, you know, those who disagree with me on the lockdowns. But, uh, you know, you brought up driving cars. I mean, I, I cooked myself a an absolutely beautiful ribeye steak last night, perfectly seared, perfectly cooked. And th- there is always the possibility that in ingesting that I could get E. coli and I could die. Right. It's small. I don't worry about it, but I like my steaks a little bit rare. Risk is a part of life. And I'm sensing there are a lot of politicians now who are taking the the truly preposterous position that if only we listen to them, the risk will be gone. And I don't I I, I see this as as a little bit of a a play on the perfect security promise after 9-11. Just give away like civil liberties and authority. But this is actually much worse. Right. We kind of knew that we could defeat a human enemy. Uh, with this, though, it feels like this is going to be around forever. And you had uh, Scott Gottlieb in this interview, which I, I cited earlier in the show, David, and he's saying, well, you know, the virus looks like we're going to have continuous spread even with the lockdowns. OK, well, what does that mean? Right. Well, if we reemerge, the virus is still going to be here. Right. So people right. are still going to get it. Can't continue to have lockdowns every time that happens. I mean, may- maybe you can have lockdowns for certain parts of the population but it seems clear to me, and I'm not a scientist, granted, that, uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to let the virus play out. That's what flattening the curve was about. Now they want to just decimate the curve or destroy the curve. It's just not what the initial argument was. And it's not realistic unless we completely decimate the, the economy, which hurts people in other ways. I mean, it puts lives in danger in other ways and our, our mental health, our physical health. Uh, I just don't. And I also just don't understand why we need why people demand that Florida act the same way New York act or Oklahoma act the same way, you know, uh, 
New York Act. It doesn't make any sense. One size fits all policy, and this just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Speaking of David Harsani of a National Review, David, I want to switch gears with you and get to some of the other political stories out there. And anything, I mean, people were almost reporting on murder hornets with glee just because I think they knew that the murder hornets weren't COVID-19 and we could all like look at something that was, you know, that was the new shiny object, their scary mandibles and the ripping off of the bee heads that they do and all this stuff. Uh, but any political story right now feels like a bit of a respite, even even stories that under normal circumstances would be in full of, you know, a lot of acrimony and people really going after each other. The stuff on Biden and the Biden papers, uh, you've written on this. I do. I just want to know before I ask what, what your take is and whether we should get access to this stuff. I remember during the Kavanaugh hearing that we were we were told and I watched as much of that hearing as I could stomach. I mean, it was hours and hours of it over the many days. And we were told that if you didn't have a release of of literally millions of pages of documents from the Bush administration about Kavanaugh, that this was rushed through and we weren't getting the full picture. But Joe Biden's going like, whoa, I can't release this stuff in the Delaware University uh, archive because there could be some bad stuff in there. What? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this. The first thought is that you're completely right. They had created, they were, before, before there was Blasey Ford or anything like that, they complained that they needed to see every shred of paper uh, that Kavanaugh, you know, in any sort of, from the 90s, anything Kavanaugh ever did with the Bush administration during the Clinton, uh, you know, impeachment, whatever. He wanted, they wanted every shred of paper. Um, then when Blase Ford came around and all these uh, accusations and allegations started piling up, they wanted to look, they looked at his yearbook. The poor guy brought his calendar from high school, uh, you know, 50-something-year-old man to, to, the, to, the, to the Senate. Everything was vitally important. And now there's zero curiosity about any of that stuff relating to sexual assault allegation. So that, that's the first thing. But, my, but secondly, you just mentioned that when they asked him why you're not releasing it, he literally said because they might have conversations with Vladimir Putin in there and you might take them out of context. Um, imagine if, you know, I mean, didn't we just go through four years of hysteria over conversations with secret conversations with Putin? Releasing his papers gives context to all of that. It doesn't take the context away. It's absurd. His, his reasoning for not releasing it is completely absurd. The real reason he doesn't want to release it is because we have 50 years of, of, right, of notes and letters that will undermine every position he has right now, which is the, the, his experience is, the, is his argument for the presidency, and yet he disagrees with everything he ever believed for, for almost 50 well, years. My, so, my, my essential, my thesis, uh, David, on, on Joe Biden is that he is, he is, in a sense, the quintessential politician in that he just... What do I need to say to get reelected or to be in the good graces of my party at the moment without 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 any exception that that that's where he has been? What has been the most advantageous position for Joe Biden at every step of his political career? I think if you go back and look. That's where he, that's what it has been. Absolutely. Um, you know, he pretends that he was only civil with segregationists, but that's not true. He wanted committee assignments. He wanted seats on those committees. He had issues that they shared a belief in like, you know, busing. And perhaps there's nothing wrong with that, but he should make that argument. But I would ask someone to ask him, I mean, the person with accents, they'll, they'll never ask him, but 
is there what position has he held throughout his career? One position on policy, not some platitude that he's held throughout his career. Is there any? He's been wrong about war. I'm just quoting him. He says he was wrong about it. He's been wrong about Iraq. He was wrong. He thinks he was wrong about gay marriage or abortion. He was a he was one of the leading pro-life Democrats in the Senate for years and years and years. And now he has an extremist position on that as well. So, you know, listen, I don't think people really care about flip-flops that much, but it does say something about him as a politician and a person. I, I, did you see the uh, the New York Magazine piece that I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close to this. It was, you know, uh, being out of public view and not being heard from Joe Biden's best weapon is being uh, put aside because of these allegations. <laughs> They're actually saying that his advantage is to not be heard from and not be seen in public. And that's his best strategy. That was his best strategy. That was the piece said. I think that's right. And <laughs> you see his poll number up whenever, whenever he's not there because he's having a hard time articulating positions. And I think the more you see him, the less you like him. I think that was the case with Hillary as well. People forget her poll numbers look pretty good as far as likability and stuff before she started running in 2015. They had risen and then they quickly went down. But that might be the case with most people. But uh, the thing with Biden is that he really doesn't stand for anything other than taking down Donald Trump. And that might be good enough. Maybe it is good enough. But, uh, and did you see this uh, this one uh, on the on the sexual assault allegations against against Biden specifically? Lisa Bloom, who people may know, is a, a how a well a well known feminist lawyer. She's right. She's one of these people that like sues high profile individuals for for sexual harassment. And and in her Twitter bio, she even has like. Bill O'Reilly hates me or something. I mean, she's she's one. She's clearly a, a left wing liberal legal feminist. And and she tweeted out. I don't know if you saw this, David. So I'm just going to give this to you for this from the weekend. This is from her official. Do you know who Lisa Bloom is? Are you familiar with this? Uh, this lady a little bit. Somewhat. Yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah. A little yeah. Bit. I mean, like you, you know, the basics about her. She tweeted out. I believe you, Tara Reid. You have people who remember you told them about this decades ago. We know he, meaning Biden, is handsy. You are not asking for money. You've obviously struggled mightily with this. I still have to fight Trump, so I will still support Joe. But I believe you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there, there we go. At least someone's saying it, right? At least someone's telling us the truth. Yeah, I mean, Biden, the allegation's totally credible. He's a handsy weirdo. Maybe he sexually assaulted this lady. But I still got to vote for Biden. This is a, a feminist lawyer activist it reminds me of uh, the clinton years when you had people defending him saying things like you know i don't know if i can say this yeah i know i know you, I, I would i would do things for bill clinton as a female if he keeps abortion legal same idea right 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 so the, so the bigger truth the more important you know the more important political angle is not the single person but the the cause right so i think that's that's what you're seeing right now. I mean, the double standard is 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 ama it's amazing and trans so transparent that I think I don't know that we can go on longer like this. I mean, next time there's a sexual uh, assault allegation against someone, I just I mean, we're just going to go back and forth showing them how hypocritical they are, but they'll just ignore it, right? And I want to just quickly mention it's not just the media coverage that's hypocritical or the political sort of positioning on this, but I wrote about this as well. Joe Biden supports a complete stripping due process from colleges where people where people where young men most of the time are um these are the title nine investigations you know, alleged, right yeah, yeah alleged cannot have witnesses 
cannot uh, question their accuser, you know, it goes on and on. And he supports those, uh, those restrictions on due process as well. And not a single person who interviews him, who could, they could barely ask him about the whole thing as it is, will ask him about that either. And uh, that bothers me, I think, more than any of, any of this, because there are, these are powerless people who don't have the media, who don't have uh, you know, other politicians defending them. In fact, they have the opposite. My, my favorite form of, of performative liberal journalism is when finally, after weeks of delay, one of their very highly paid and wildly overrated uh, news anchors asks like one or two blaringly obvious questions of Joe Biden. And we're all supposed to sort of sit around like, oh, that's amazing. Look at that. Do you notice everything gets very complicated and subtle and, you know, thorny when they, you know, when, when, when they have to ask one of theirs these questions? It wasn't like that during Kavanaugh. And, uh, you know, I agree with you. I mean, it was like they set him up. He knew the question was coming. And he honestly, he still didn't really answer nope. in any kind of real, uh, you know, you know, he just he looked lost. He looked like they had given him a script. As soon as he had to get off the script, he looked like a deer in headlights. I just don't think that his answer is very good. Also, unfortunately, I don't think people care. I also think it's noteworthy there. There are and I'm gonna I'm gonna you know call her out here. Kirsten Powers, who I think he used to was she ever kind of a she's definitely a Democrat now. I don't know. Maybe I don't know if she was one that switched over, but she made a claim publicly on on Twitter, which is where all the now that the journalists are all locked at home, we just fight on Twitter all day. So for those at home listening, you're like, who cares? This is this is what all the people that are supposed to be chasing down facts and actually finding stuff out for you doing. They're they're snarking at their perceived opponents, uh, ideological opponents in the in the world of media. But she had something about you know, how the standard was essentially, um, you know, that, that Joe Biden has has addressed the allegations, but Kavanaugh didn't. Not only is that crazy, right? I mean, and I remember I actually argued with Kirsten Powers on Twitter during the Kavanaugh thing, and she was out of her mind. She was wrong uh, then. But but it, Molly Hemingway, who wrote, of course, the book Justice on Trial, an excellent book. I know your former colleague from The Federalist came out and reminded everybody that the Senate Democrats wanted the Swetnick allegations to be a part of the Senate record against him. The woman who was clearly out of her mind and lying. And I think uh, Senator uh, Harris mentioned her, and it's in the record. Yes. But more than that, she, she claimed that uh, the standard hadn't changed, that senators were only calling for an FBI investigation, and if they couldn't get that investigation, then he should step down. I then sent uh, her... A bunch of links showing that that was. Oh, so you, you, you and Powers, you and Powers threw down over this. I didn't even see that. Look at this. Yeah. Tell me what happened. So I, I sent her link after link of, of Democrats saying he needs to step down with no, you know, it was no unless this or, or that. It was just, it was just step down because uh, we believe all women, whatever it was. And uh, so she just ignored that. And then she, I think, deleted her old tweet. There's <laughs> really no way to, to have crazy. a debate about stuff. And I, I feel like things have changed in a way where there actually used to be, listen, uh, there's always hypocrisy. There's always sort of partisanship. But there used to be some sort of maybe ground rules of a debate that you had, like you had to live by your opinions from the past, that you had to defend what you had said at some point or explain why you didn't believe that anymore. I feel like people don't, have any need you know don't feel any need to do that anymore yeah it's, it's just a total food fight whatever wins in the moment whatever gets the most you know yes slay you know that's what people want especially in the world of, of digital media well david uh, what are you writing on this week anything you can give us a preview of for national review 
I just uh, wrote a short piece on the Lincoln Project's new ad uh, playing off Reagan Reagan's Morning in America, you know, and they it's like mourning, like, you know, sadness in America. And it's sort of just a very anti-Reagan ad where it shows American people as a bunch of helpless, you know, uh, self-pitying, uh, you know, servants of the state waiting around for government to save them, which is a, is a, the antithesis of Reaganism and is not what Reagan stood for at all. Again, I'm not here to glorify a president, but he had a very uh, sunny disposition, and I think he believed in American exceptionalism, which people at the Lincoln Project do not. Yeah, the Lincoln Project is uh, getting some heat from the Trumpster himself, as they should. A lot of clowns over there. But thank you so much, David Harsani from Nash Review. Great to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just got to say that as we think about the way that the media has treated the allegations against Biden and, and how many of us who were very vocal, as I was at the time, about the treatment of Kavanaugh and how horrendous the whole thing was, uh, I've got to say the media has even exceeded. I knew they'd be dirty and terrible on this, but they it's as though uh, it's as though their only options are to admit that they were. Uh, that they're engaged in a horrific double standard for nothing but political reasons or to just take their credibility and and run it through a buzzsaw a few times. And they're just I mean, they're just running it through that buzzsaw. They do not care. I don't know if that really sound like a buzzsaw, but, you know, it was kind of my it's just like a high pitched noise. Uh, anyway, they're they're even exceeding my expectations for awfulness is all I'm saying. And that's and the fact that Biden is their candidate, that exceeds my expectations for how awful and how ridiculous they are. I mean, this this is this is flatly absurd. I, I, I sit here thinking to myself, this is who they offer up. And we all recognize that this guy's a joke, right? This is absurd. He was a joke when he was Obama's VP. The fact that Delaware has let this guy be a senator as long as he had is just astonishing. And now we're going to make him president of the United States. Mm mm. Mm mm. I don't think so. Uh, but then again, the Democrats thought maybe we should make the guy who, uh, you know, w- was, uh, I mean, the, the open socialist soon to be uh, in his ninth in his ninth decade of life, Bernie Sanders, make him the president. I mean, the Democrats are just, they're nuts, folks. They're just nuts. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, just the stakes are too high when it comes to another four years of Trump. My community especially has been so impacted. um, And it's, you know, for a lot of communities, this is an issue of life and death. We've had kids in cages. We've had a pandemic response that happened way too late uh, that has cost us lives. We have people that um, don't have access to critical care that they need. I think it's really important that we rally behind um, our Democratic nominee in November. What would Joe Biden have done differently? I mean, let's really just take a moment for this, right? If Joe Biden had been president, what would have gone differently here? He wouldn't have shut down flights from China. We know that because the Democrats were all opposed to that. The media was opposed to that. And even the public health experts weren't sure what was going to be the big difference, the big change in his approach? And I mean this. Can you even think of what it would be? I don't know. He was going to mandate a federal lockdown across the board. He doesn't have the. We've already gone through this. 
the states are the ones that are using police powers or more specifically quarantine powers under their police powers uh, to institute a lot of the lockdown policies. The federal government can shut the borders down, but the Democrats are open borders. Democrats don't want to shut borders down. They want them to be as wide open as possible. So what was Biden going to do that was different? And why would we have the expectation that he'd be better at this? Let's take a step back for a moment. We had President Obama in office for eight years. Was Obama good as a steward of the economy? I mean, were Obama administration policies good for growth, good for small business and and helpful uh, coming out of a recession? Right. The problem with gauging the Obama administration on the economy was it was it was always we were they picked the worst month of job losses and it was a cyclical financial uh, recession. But they took the worst month of job losses and then anything was better than that. So they said, well, that's what we were at. And now here's where we are. Well, yeah, but you had eight years. And, and how did it really feel? Uh, what was GDP looking like? And compare it to other administrations, not just right before, but stretching back for many decades. Democrat policies, you know, raising raising taxes, regulating the crap out of all businesses and completely engaging in, in uh, excessive and, and enhanced central planning all the time is not a recipe for productivity, for wealth, for growth, for prosperity. We, we ran this experiment with the Obama administration, but now we're told, oh, if Biden had been in charge, things would be better. Remember that without this horrible disease ripping through the globe, the Trump administration, I mean, they were they kept lying. The Democrats were lying about how the economy wasn't that good. The economy was phenomenal. Now we all look at this and say, of course it was. I, I was telling you it was all along. Those of you who have been longtime listeners to this show know that I kept saying, guys, life is really good right now. Enjoy it. Life. And that's not, you know, there are other shows that are like, yeah, it's terrible. The country's falling apart, you know, and there's all this stuff. And it's the same thing every day. And oh, the bad people and they're yelling. And the, I, I was telling you the truth, which was that the economy is actually in a, in a better place. Um, the economy is really uh, so strong and things are going so well that we should have enjoyed those mo- those moments as a nation. And the first three years of the Trump presidency were a beautiful thing. Um, now we're in a different place because of the virus. Back to AOC. Back to AOC. What exactly is AOC's contention here about the late start to the pandemic, the late start to the pandemic response? Did did Europe do a better job? No, Europe did not do a better job. What country are we supposed to look at that got ahead of this, um, but did the same things that we did? Because remember, it's they're complaining about She's complaining about the timing. Now, AOC is a moron, but she's a very influential moron. So we have to deal with her. Right? We have to understand what her contentions are. And, and her ignorance can't just be brushed aside because her ignorance, unfortunately, is very influential in the minds of even more ignorant people on the left who view her as, as really a, a, a symbolic figure in many ways. Right? She's, she's young, she's Latina, she's super left-wing, she's a socialist. That's all that they care about. You know? And that, that's it. You know, she's, she's good on TV and has a strong social media game and everything else. You know, the, the substance of her positions and what she says does not really matter. Um, but I, I would just note that... Uh, they never they never speaking of substance, they never tell you what would be different if you had had a, if we had had a Biden administration dealing with all of this. They have no real 
answer for you. And you sit and you say, well, hold on a moment. Why should we think that Biden would do a better? Oh, because he's not Trump. And that's really all it comes down to, which you could say about a lot of people. There are a lot of people around the world who are not Donald Trump. Uh, But this is intellectual dishonesty. And uh, you're seeing this from particularly from progressives right now, that this is an opportunity for them. Yes, they want to rally behind Biden, but it's because they view him as just the vessel for the progressive agenda. All you need are Democrats, but the Democratic Party has moved so far left that all you need is a Democrat in charge. All you need is a Democrat in charge, and uh, they'll be able to get a lot of things they want, and and they'll have the judges they want who are left-wing activists pretending to interpret the law and all these other things. So it doesn't all, all it has to be is Team Democrat has to win. That's all that they care about. And in, in the more immediate term, the policies they're pushing for show you what they really think this country needs, which is a whole lot more socialism and central planning. Ayanna Presley, for example, is out there advocating for the cancellation of rent. Play clip six. Renters are in trouble. Renters are suffering. Um, talk about uh, the, the ideas that you have for trying to alleviate that. Sure. Well, first, I just want to uh, commend my uh, my colleague, Representative Omar, for her legislation, which I'm proud to be an original co-sponsor of, uh, which would cancel rent. Um, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, a public health crisis. People are quite literally navigating a new normal, just trying to stay alive. And your housing is your most expensive bill. And also to the points made by Secretary uh, Castro and also the professor, um, housing is, is a critical determinant of health as well. So many of the health disparities that we see. It's also why we need quality, safe, and affordable housing. But housing is your most expensive bill. And so while folks are navigating a new normal, just trying to stay alive, they shouldn't also be worried about paying the rent. And so we should just cancel that and eliminate that worry. Cancel rent. Okay. I can understand why they're saying this and and put aside what the long-term plan is here, uh, because this is, we, we are now closer than we've ever thought would be possible to I've talked to you about the turnkey authoritarian state we're in now, which I should I wanted to return to that thought, but also universal basic income and and the government as the real engine of the economy instead of the other way around. The government is supposed to to print currency and to regulate, uh, you know, lawful financial and commercial activity. But this is being flipped around. Now the government is the economy. The government creates the government says this has value. So it is value. And you say, well, hold on without that's only true of currency because of the underlying economic reality. Right. Just look at Zimbabwe. Can Zimbabwe say, well, we think that our our dollars, which their their currencies completely evaporated and collapsed into nothing. But, you know, 15 years ago, they could they have said when they were going through hyperinflation, uh, we think our currency is worth X amount of gold bars and just said that. No. No. That, that would not have worked, right? The U.S. economy is valuable because of our resources, intellectual property, and the actions of the free market that have rewarded all of the value creation within the economy. That's why our dollar is worth what it is. It's not worth that because the government just happens to be like really awesome and says this is what it's worth. Otherwise, every government would do that. There's a lack of connection in the minds of the people that are advocating for this between there being any any underlying value premise for a dollar for money and what they see as government policy. 
which is effectively we are going toward modern monetary theory, whether we like it or not. That's where we're heading. This is the opportunity. Cancel rent. OK, well, the only way you can do that without just because what happens when you cancel rent? Landowner, uh, land owners um, and those who, who owned who own these homes, those who hold the mortgage that have to pay the mortgage so that they can then pay the bank. Right. So the bank can continue to lend. And, you know, there's this whole cycle. Well, if you shut down one, you got to shut down all of it. And that will cause a freeze in credit. And once credit freezes, businesses can't operate. And once businesses can't operate, there's no more milk in the stores, meat in the freezer. That's where we head. That's what ends up happening. They don't understand this, but that's true. So then what do you have to do? You have to print money. And by printing, I mean, you have to just have the creation of money as a as a, we have a fiat currency, but the additional cr uh, creation of of currency and people have been warning about this. You know, Dr. Ron Paul and others have been warning about this for a long time. Now we're really seeing where this experiment goes. We're going to be at $30 trillion debt by the end of the year. Cancel rent just means have the government pay everyone's rent. Well, if the government can pay everyone's rent for a couple of months, why can't it do it for the next six months? And why can't the government look at people who are uh, who are poor and say, we don't want you to be poor anymore. You know, here's here's a, a, a an anti-poverty payment lump sum. We'll give you we'll give you 20 grand. We'll give you 50 grand. Well, the money, they're just creating the money. What's the problem? We're always told that there's no there's no inflation. The problem with inflation is when you have it, it's too late. And when it gets bad, controlling it is very difficult. But modern monetary theory is what the uh, is what AOC, Bernie Sanders, the socialist left, which views the government as the as the authority in all things that creates all things. Right? The government allows us to maintain certain property. The government allows us to keep some of what we make and allows businesses to operate everything else. It's not that we have allowed the government to do certain things on our behalf, right? They've flipped this relationship. Uh, they just want the government to print money to pay for everything. That's what, mod that's what MMT is. Is there, is there a need for this thing? The government will pay for it. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what the price tag is. We are, we are going closer to that than we ever thought possible. And I'm not hearing, you know, where are all the conservatives who are sounding the alarm bell on this? And this is also why we got to go back to work. We have to have creation of wealth and value if we're going to keep spending dollars this is very straightforward but nobody wants to hear that right now man we are in a pandemic from COVID-19 we are also in a pandemic of panic you're in the freedom hut this is the Buck Sexton Show podcast I want Donald Trump to look one of these essential workers in the eye the meat packers, delivery drivers, healthcare workers, grocery store clerks, and tell them they don't deserve a livable wage, paid sick leave. This is all about, as my dad would say, you see, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about being treated with respect. The recognition that these people put their health and lives at risk so the rest of us could be safe and fed has to be made clear. What's a livable wage, Joe Biden? What's a livable wage? What, what is he? This is where we uh, perhaps get to the discussion about the increase in minimum wage, which is popular, even though every economist who looks at it and, and crunches the numbers on it. 
Remember, economists are not good at predictions, but they can look at what has happened and usually tell you what what the numbers were and and, and maybe we should we can make some draw some conclusions from that. But uh, he's he's doing the usual here from Democrats. What what should be a livable wage? I mean, do I think that we should be uh, supportive and thankful of those who are continuing to work or in essential jobs? Yeah, of course. And are, is there an incentive for employers to pay them well so they continue to show up for jobs that are? Yes, there, there is that incentive. But I, I want to know, is it Joe? Is it Joe Biden's prerogative to determine what they should be paid? Just want to double it. Well, I don't want to triple everybody's wages. Once you play this game and it's no longer what the market will bear, it's what Joe Biden says it will bear. There's no end. And this is why this uh, this movement away from an objective fact-based reality in, in all respects in this country toward just let the experts, let the really smart people tell you what you can do in every aspect of your life and your business, uh, wh- who you can see, where you can go. Now, now we have to have mandatory face coverings, all of this stuff. I thought we were a country where there'd be more of an objection to the eradication of our liberties. I, I thought we would be a little bit tougher to roll over than this. And I'm I'm really concerned. Uh, what makes you think that this won't be expanded? This this mentality of not just what people should be paid and where they should go and who they can see. Why won't this be used for other issues? A governor can just claim, you know, there, there were there were some of us who would say, oh, when you have a, a Democrat administration now, they'll they'll claim uh, that that president, you know, whether it's a president Biden or whomever else comes after him, they can claim that we're in a an extreme situation they'll claim a national emergency on a gun control issue for example and just start seizing guns you think that you think the people right now that are saying cancel rent uh trillions of dollars getting need to get spent on not just paying the workers who have had their jobs taken away from that's one thing i'm doing trillions of dollars on what you know whatever the wish list is for democrats just start spending money pay down the bloated pension programs of Democrat states for public sector officials, you know, all all these different things. I mean, the piggy bank has been broken open and we're all supposed to say, great, let them do whatever they want. And all of this is happening. And we should have less faith than ever in experts to rule over us, to rule over us, us proles as, uh, you know, as peasants wisely and justly and fairly. And and instead, we're, we're getting pushed more and more in the other direction. And I'm just sitting here trying to warn about what's going to happen. Think of the rhetoric used on climate change, which I know for some of you, your eyes roll back in your head. Oh, my God, climate change. It's so, you know, no, they've already told us that this is going to be this is a template. In fact, if we want to defeat climate change, you know what we have to do? Exactly what our economy is doing right now, which is a whole lot of nothing except suffer and don't do anything. But that will save the planet. And there are people who believe this, powerful people. There are international interests. There are media conglomerates. There are billionaires who are devoted to this idea of the only way we can save the planet, the only way we can really prevent the warming, they claim, is to bring CO2 levels down to where they are now, where they are now as we are shutting down our economy because of COVID-19. You don't think they're going to try for something like this again? Or that they will at least use this as the template for further statewide power grabs just declare a climate emergency no one's allowed to do this no one's allowed to do that sorry there's a climate emergency this is a deep-seated mentality i mean this this need to control others that 
progressives have. In, in many ways, it is, it is the defining separation between their psychology and that of conservatives. They want to tell other people what to do. They need to tell other people what to do. And we're going along with this much more than we should. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to get a voice from Florida on what's going on down there. We are joined by my buddy, the one and only Andy Dean. He is a conservative commentator, radio host, podcaster, entrepreneur, and a ways ago, a contestant on The Apprentice with none other than Mr. Donald Trump. Andy Dean, good to have you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. So you're down, in Flo- you're down in Florida, which everybody said a few weeks ago even was just about to get wrecked by this virus. I'm in New York, which has been wrecked by it. Florida hasn't been hit by it. And you're seeing all these liberals who are coming out with, well, you know, they got lucky, essentially. It seems like it has to be more than just they got lucky. What are you seeing? Why has your now your home state uh, and you look, your governor seems to have done a good job. But why is that the case? What were the decisions made that you're seeing that prevented you guys from getting hit badly? Sure. So. For most part, uh, liberals are wrong about 100% of the time. But in this case, there's some truth to the luck part because heat and humidity do play a factor. And and I did a bunch of personal research into this because I wanted to see if that was true or not. And actually, after the Spanish flu, so 1918, 1919, they actually did a a very well thought out study based on guinea pigs. And that's actually where the, the modern day term guinea pig comes from is that they studied flu transmission in guinea pigs and they perfected the temperatures. They tried it at all different types of temperatures. And the hotter and more humid it is, the less a flu or respiratory virus will, will spread. And the reason why that's true is that obviously droplets that come from a sneeze or a cough, if the air has more wetness, more moisture, then that those droplets get wet, they get heavier, they fall, they can't spread as far. And so that's why you don't really see the flu in the months of September, October, no matter where you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and so heat and humidity have a, a major factor uh, to do with that. And so that's part of the reason why Florida's been successful. Also protecting the nursing homes, critically important. So those are the most important type of people you want to protect. And in Florida, they're all pretty much located in certain places. So, you know, it makes it easier that way. And what do you think about the the statewide response uh, from Governor DeSantis and what you've seen uh, more at the local level? You're, you're in Naples, right? You're in uh, that part of Florida? Or? Uh, so I'm in uh, Fort Lauderdale, so Broward Lauderdale. County. So, yeah, so southeast Florida essentially is Miami-Dade, where Miami is. North of that is Broward. And then there's Palm Beach County. And that's about 6.2 million people in all three of those counties. The whole state's about 21 million. And so essentially the lockdown or stay at home order has been lifted for the rest of Florida, except for these three southeastern counties of Palm Beach, Broward and Miami-Dade. So the rest of the state, you know, restaurants can be 25 percent capacity. Most of the beaches are open. But down here, uh, because there's a little bit more density, especially in Miami, also the population's older down here, uh, the powers that be uh, have kept the lockdown going and also on a local level. You know, Broward's the most liberal county, sadly, in all of Florida. And so the mayor here, who has a lot of issues personally, um, he's he's just, you know, liberals, obviously, they love the power thing. So we'll probably be locked down here for 
a, a longer time than the rest of Florida, unfortunately. We're speaking to Andy Dean. He is a podcaster, radio host, conservative commentator, entrepreneur. Uh, Andy, what do you think about just at the, at the national level now, uh, where we're heading and, and the state by state guidance from the Trump administration? And how do you think Trump, who you know very well, somebody you spent a lot of time with, how do you think he's he's handled this moment as the chief executive of the United States government? You know, it's a tough thing. I'm always predisposed and biased to liking Donald. You know, he gave me my first real job. I worked for him personally for seven years. I was his first media surrogate in 2015. And I say those things in a, in a humble way just because I, I try to distance myself uh, to seek out the truth at all times. That's, you know, what we try to do, I guess. You know, for the most part, we say we try to do. So I think for the most part, he's done the best job in the sense that the hand uh, that he's been dealt um, because the media was so hysterical at the beginning of this. I mean, Trump tried his best to try to calm people down and try to take more of a Sweden-style approach at the beginning. And then the onslaught from the media was so hysterical that we essentially did what Britain did, and we had to kind of do a 180 and do these lockdowns, which Trump kind of supported. So I think that he really just went the only direction politically he could when the media became so hysterical. Uh, there are two mistakes I have to point out that he made first, criticizing Governor Kemp. That was a mistake, something that he just shouldn't have done, because Governor Kemp, when we look back on this in a year or five years, was re the real hero who had the courage to step forward first and look at the data, look at the science. Liberals, of course, say they look at the data, but we know that that's nonsense. And Governor Kemp did the right thing in Georgia. And also, second, the thing that bothered me about Trump's response uh, is Sweden. When all is said and done, when we look back at this, Sweden's approach, and, and people will see this in about two to four months, but it was the right approach. You protect the most vulnerable. You don't have large events. You tell people to wash their hands. You do the obvious things. But what we can't do is shut ourselves indoors like hermits. It's stupid. It's counterproductive because at some point we have to come out and the virus doesn't go away. It's going to be here. I mean, people still test positive for H1N1, and that was in 2009. People still test positive for HIV, and that came from Africa in 1910. So people will still test positive for this 50 years from now. So it's just a way to manage this the best we can. The thought was to flatten the curve. We've done that. Now we need to get out and live our lives and manage this the best way we can. And you're just wondering, how are the beaches right now near you? Are they are they open? Are there people on them? Are you, know, are you seeing some signs of a, a greater return to normalcy? Yeah, so I actually live like, a, you know, two minutes uh, from the beach. And it's pleasant in one way in that I've never seen Fort Lauderdale Beach, which is, you know, it depends on how you look at it, right? It's a positive if you're a spring breaker and you're, you know, drunk at 11 a.m. It's cool, right? But if you're pretty normal, um, semi-normal, then it's actually quite pleasant. Um, the promenade is open. They've actually shut down one of the lanes on A1A. So if you're a jogger or, you know, bicycler or whatever, um, it's actually a little bit more pleasant. And I think it will be some time before they open the beaches. But the, the funny thing what's so counterintuitive and why big government and liberals are so stupid is that people are out and about. They're just not on the beach line. They're right behind in the promenade line in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, in Miami, there's South Point Park, which for anybody who's a Miami fan, that's right near Joe Stonecrab. That was opened up five days ago. And of course, everybody flooded it because they wanted some sunshine. And then the mayor of Miami Beach, of course, a liberal, said, oh, you know, we have to shut it down now because people aren't behaving responsibly. So, you know, it's going to be touch and go with this beach stuff. You're, what you're going to see more is, of course, the blue and red divide of 
liberals are going to have a heavier hand and conservatives won't. And it just depends on how you look at the world and how you look at risk. You know, I look at risk, uh, you know, like I enter my car, right? I take a risk. Anyone with a logical, common sense mind, which most conservatives have, realize that no matter what we do, there will be risk. Whereas liberals who are more of the nanny state, they look to government more for solutions. They like that heavy hand. They say, oh, we know what's best for you. And so we're going to make sure you're safe and decide for you. Whereas conservatives think, hey, I know the risks. As long as I know them, I should just be able to decide if I want to go outside. So there's going to be some of that dynamic. And then, Buck, if you have time, I want to point out what I see is the reporting of data from which I found uh, is the most worrisome going forward. Do you have time for this or no? Um, yeah, we're speaking to Andy Dean, who is a podcaster, radio host, entrepreneur. And we like to throw in that you're on The Apprentice with Donald because that people think that that's cool. So we'd like to throw that in there. But yeah, yeah well, dude, we'll, I, I had a great time. Yeah. What, reality what, show was the best, actually, the best time of my life. I had a great time. I'm not, not surprised um, to hear it. it. Uh, but, but so you had this one thing on early. It sucks. You had this one thing on the data that you wanted to add in before we before we let you go. What is it? Yeah. So I think the thing is when you can tell people are fudging data. Uh, because in my life, I've done a, a bunch of financial audits, being an entrepreneur and a business person. So if you look at the actual data, if they're fudging it, you, you just have to look at it with a critical mind. And if you look at the Johns Hopkins data, which the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and all these people parrot, look at New York City and New York State. And this is what is fascinating. I want to bring it home to where you are, Buck. Is it in New York State as a whole, including New York City, there have been approximately 330,000 cases, approximately. And it's divided in about half in New York City and half in the rest of the state. And, you know, that makes sense for a couple of reasons, right? New York City is more dense, has more of a population, right? So 330,000 total cases, half the cases are in New York City, the other half are in the rest of the state. But this is how you can tell they're fudging the data. When you look at the deaths, because it's hard to fake deaths because you've got a body bag, right, sadly, the, all of New York State outside of New York City is reporting 700 deaths. 700 from you know the 165,000 cases. New York City is reporting 18,200 deaths. So think about that. New York State 700 deaths. New York City 18,200. But they have the exact same number of cases. Yet New York City has 25 times the death rate. So something's going on, of course. And that's of course in the way that you count it. Are you counting people who die of COVID-19? Are you counting people who die with COVID-19? In New York City, they're counting people who die with COVID-19. In New York State, they're counting people who die of COVID-19. And so that's the major change of the numbers. And one last thing, Buck, to think about is that if you look at these antibody tests, about 10 to 20% of the population is testing positive for COVID-19. So in an average month, if 250,000 Americans die in an average month and 10 to 20% of everybody has it, that means that if you just test newly dead people who just happen to be dead, if they're newly dead, that means on average, 25 to 50,000 newly dead people will have COVID-19 in their, in their system because 10 to 20% of the population already has antibodies in their system. So this is an important thing when we look back in retrospect at all of this, that it's critical to break down the numbers to find out, is the lockdown appropriate? Was it appropriate with what we knew back in March? Is it appropriate now? And most importantly, if I could leave one last thing, you know, with your listenership up, the one policy decision we need to take as a country, we have to guarantee and stockpile antiviral medicine. This is important. After SARS hit, 
uh, Gilead, who created remdesivir, they were test try trialing um, this remdesivir after SARS in 2003, but they stopped doing it because SARS disappeared and there was no market for the drug. What we need to do in the future is guarantee antivirals for pharmaceutical companies and say, hey, we will be a buyer of this stuff, even if there is no outbreak for future coronaviruses, testing all types of different coronaviruses and coming up with antivirals with vaccines, with different variations and getting this stuff stockpiled and being a buyer of last resort. Because what we don't want to have happen is if this stuff all goes away and then all of the money in R&D dries up, then 10 years from now when we get hit again, there'll be no market for this stuff and we're going to have to you know, start from scratch. So that's an important thing that I think your listenership should know uh, because they're bright people, is that we need to stockpile as a country these antivirals. Even if this thing disappears in a year, we need to be prepared for a coronavirus to come back. Right. Five years from people now. talk about this like a war. You don't start making missiles and bullets when the enemy invades. And if you think of it the same way, it makes a lot of sense. Andy Dean, everybody, uh, you can check him out on, on social media. He does radio. He does podcasts. He's a man about town. We'll have him back on the show. Andy, you and I will do a long form sit down for YouTube at some point. What do you say? Yeah, I'd like to do that. But I apologize. I was talking way too much. I just missed the media <laughs> business. Uh, You're a radio host. Just, like, cause you might- you have a much bigger fl- platform, so I talked way too much. Next time, I'll listen. You're I all good, my man. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe down there, and we'll be in touch, all right? See you, man. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just as it feels like we're getting closer to more of the country being open and people being able to, to restart their lives, not entirely, but in, in pieces, in parts, so much of, a, of an effort today to scare people, more of the panic porn out there in the news media. I'm seeing this thing about beware of COVID toes, your toes. Now they're saying people, their toes may turn a bluish color, even if they're otherwise asymptomatic. Oh, this is terrifying. People, we don't understand this disease, right? Remember, the experts don't understand this disease, but they know you have to be terrified and listen to them. Um. You also have the coronavirus mutation, this uh, possibility that that will prevent us from having real continuous immunity or long-term immunity from this. And that might stymie attempts to have a worthwhile vaccine. All, All these different things meant to scare us. What do these people want us to do? They really think we're just gonna stay inside until it's safe to go out? It's not going to, it's, If your benchmark for safe to go out is there is no realistic possibility of acquiring and possibly dying from COVID-19, we're never going back outside. We're never going back outside. And by the time we can go back outside in a year or two, assuming they can cure this, maybe it's 10 years before they have a therapeutic. Who knows? There are a lot of diseases that people have wanted to cure for a long time. We've had a ton of research, billions and billions of dollars and Mm-mm. You know, Mother Nature is still beating, still beating the smartest minds in the world on this issue. So I, I just feel like we, we are, we're going to have to really steal our courage here. You're going to have to be willing to go against the consensus, which has been so hard. And I, I told you earlier in the show that this is the first time on this issue they finally managed to get Trump to bend the knee. And I know that what was his other altar? What was his other choice? Well, they're saying that he's killed all these people who have died from COVID-19 anyway. 
So people who, you know, the, but the pressure and the media and the experts and the scientists, they sh he should have opened. And I was pushing forward and, oh, I got shouted down and yelled at and called a horrible person. You know, my, my initial impulse, which was at 15 days, and then we're back out and taking precautions, protecting vulnerable population, doing the things that everyone knows we should be doing, but allowing people to go to work, allowing people the freedom, at least, to continue to live their lives. Uh, that, you know, which Sweden has done and did not get destroyed. And everyone now is saying, oh, Sweden's the same as everybody else. Bull crap, okay? We can keep changing and rewriting history. People are so desperate to think that they were smart enough to see things coming that they didn't. Um, but we're going to have to be willing to push back on the consensus here. The, the media apparatus is still centered along the coast, particularly in New York and D.C. Uh, very powerful interests see this as the greatest opportunity to defeat Donald Trump. I wish it were not the case that there was such a, a uh, close connection between anti-Trumpism and continuous lockdown. But there is. There is. And that means that the people that are pushing for this have very powerful, in their minds, very powerful motivations for continued lockdown that have nothing to do with what the science tells them or, or saving lives or the experts or anything else. This is about their desperation. Remember, these people have been nuts for four years with all these theories about why Trump shouldn't be president. He's a threat to the country. He's leading us to nuclear war. Everything is going to be destroyed because of him. Our economy is going to be destroyed because of him. They were wrong about all of it. I guess it's on some of us, and, and maybe I should have reminded myself as we went through this fight against the pandemic that this that, that mentality that that same shrill insanity from the left in the era of Trump, it didn't go away because we faced this pandemic. It didn't go away because of COVID-19. Those same individuals are now the ones standing around saying, if you don't wear a mask all the time, including when you're riding a bicycle by yourself on a trail somewhere, you're 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 putting people at risk of, of killing and, and, and killing them. And you might even be responsible for manslaughter in some way. I mean, that's how insane this is getting now. And that's the next step, right? You could kill somebody. Well, if you can kill somebody and you're responsible, what are the legal ramifications for it? This is absurd. This is outrageous. But we are in a time of mass hysteria. And if, if we're going to get back our country, forget about the fall election right now. All right. We got to get we got to get to the fall election. If we're going to get our country back, you have to be willing to look at these things for yourself and say, I will stand against the consensus. Many of the experts have been wrong. I need them to prove to me they are right. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, roll call. And remember to go check out BuckSexton.com if you have not already. We're going to be putting more and more on the website as the days go forward. Producer Mark also uh, not not in subtle fashion, reminded me that I have made a promise about a malt, a series really of Malta podcasts, which I, I'm going. It's happening. It's happening. All right. It, sure it's, it is. <sighs> you know, I'm doing five hours of radio a day. I, my, my vocal cords are just going to explode one day. But producer Mark is right. I, I, we make promises here. We keep them. So it's it's going to happen. But uh, he's just so you know, he is like your advocate team. He makes sure that when I say, hey, I'm going to do this. I will do this, so it, it will happen. I'll record the first one this weekend, if not sooner. And you know what? I'm going to record it, and if it's not the best thing that you've ever heard, the good news is it's not this show. It's an extra. It's like the DVD extra, right? I mean, you can watch it or not watch it. 
Do I think it'll probably be kind of awesome? Obviously, because that's how we roll in the Freedom Hut. But you know, for some of you, it's not going to be your cup of tea. I've also decided in, in response to previous feedback, I'm just going to talk to you guys about it. I'm just going to sit there and be like, this is the Battle, battle of Malta, the Siege of Malta, and not do a written out, you know, like almost like an audio book of it. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, here, here's what's going on. So it's not going to be a, a perfectly clean verbiage description of it, but it'll be it'll be pretty good. Darn it. It'll be pretty good. So with that, now we get producer Mark sending me the actual roll call for today. And here's what we got. Mark, not to be confused with producer Mark, with so many asymptomatic carriers of the covid-19, how can track and trace possibly be effective? Why should we spend millions of dollars for an army of trackers and tracers when up to 98% of the infected cannot be tracked and traced? Thank you for your great work and insightful comments. Mark, tra track and trace is stupid. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And I saw this uh, CNN piece on track and trace in Turkey, and they were saying, oh, well, in Turkey that they've, you know, they've had been a pretty good at, at keeping this disease under control. And at the end of the segment, they say, well, I mean, all this does rely on the people we're asking to remember everyone they came into contact with, remember everywhere they went, and to be honest about the whole thing, too, and to then be OK with the state coming in. So here's how track and trace would work. You know, I, I, I have a cold, right? Let's say we go back to uh, some workplace environment where you're allowed to start, you're allowed to start opening businesses. If track and trace is in place in New York and they, they're hiring thousands of tracers do they have medical backgrounds? No. These are just going to be, they're going to be government employees. It's going to be like the TSA, except they show up to your house. No offense, TSA. I like some TSA people. There have been some Team Buck TSA that have over the years. And so I'm, you know, they're making sure the planes don't blow up and I appreciate them. But I'm just, you know, there were some excesses in the early days. ATF right now, it's tough to defend because of the Waco show, which everyone is seeing and saying, is this kind of how it went down? And uh, I'm not hearing it's not how it went down. So I don't know if anyone out there listens to the show is ATF and you know the real details of Waco. And if you've seen the show on Netflix and you want to tell me why that is not. Of course, it's it's theatrical and they're taking. But did they show up and do that raid when they could have just picked him up off the street? Why? What was the reason for forcing that confrontation when they could have just grabbed him during a jog and and. and shut the whole thing down that way. I, I want Does anyone out there? I don't know. We got people listening. We got people who listen to the show who are ATF. I know we got people also who are TSA, though. And, and actually, one of the first times I ever had somebody uh, recognize me in public was a TSA agent many years ago in Dallas. And he was Team Buck. And I was like, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate that. So, you know, again, when I talk about like teachers unions, I'm talking about the bad teachers. All right. So if you're a good public school teacher, listen to this. You know, we love you. You can always make that assumption. Uh, where was I on this? Oh, yeah. Trackers are going to or tracers rather are going to they're going to be a lot of look, the government's desperate to hire people to do this. And there are going to be a lot of people do this who are not particularly competent or qualified. But the way it'll work is that if, if I then show up to the office and I have a, what I think is a cold, but then it, I get the symptoms. Forget about asymptomatic. How do you even know then? Right. But if I get the if I get the. Uh, and they're going to say, well, we need to have so many tests in place that we're testing asymptomatic people all the time, too. My friends, how, when, when is that going to stop? How many we're going to have millions and millions of people taking uh, COVID tests all the time and, and think of the testing capacity you need for this. This is just it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. They can keep talking about it. It's never going to happen. 
Um, and it feels like they're trying to intentionally delay the reopening by pretending this is going to happen. But so then I would say, all right, OK, I, I think I've got COVID-19. And then I'd meet with a tracer who would show up to my home. That's the least the way it was in this in this model they were showing us in Turkey. Uh, CNN was showing they show up to my home and they would take, you know, a, a swab from my nose, which does not look very comfortable, by the way. And they would then talk to me about everywhere I've been and everyone that I've. And then they go talk to those people. And guess what? They're going to tell some of those people you got to quarantine for 14 days. And they might say, well, hold on a second. I, I just I passed this guy in the hallway. Now I've got to quarantine for 14 days. I, I can't do my job. I can't go to work. I can't be near my kid. Do I have to quarantine my family too? I mean, this is a nightmare. And all it takes is for me to, to sit down with the tracers and say, well, you know, I, I've had symptoms for four or five days and this is where I think I've been and who I've been around. I forget a couple of people and maybe they're infected and maybe then they, they go infect a bunch of people while they're asymptomatic. It's just it's a it's a nonsense idea. It doesn't make any sense. And yet it's required New York to reopen. You got to have more tracers in place. Uh, but and once you add asymptomatic spread into this, too, the only so what they're claiming, just so we're very clear, because I said earlier in the show and I got sidetracked with our guests and things. What they're claiming is that tracing um, uh, tracing is. Going testing and tracing will mean that everyone who falls in certain categories will be getting COVID-19 tests. And I suppose it'll have to be on some kind of a cycle every two weeks or every 30 days. And then if you're positive, you meet with a tracer and then that tracer will then sit down with you. And I, I under color of law, I mean, and there might be a legal obligation here. You tell them everyone you've seen, everyone you've been around. If this wasn't a turnkey surveillance state, I don't know what is. And then they get to go interview all those people and force them to take a COVID-19 test. And even before they find out if they're positive, one would have to assume that they will then have to quarantine for 14 days. And it'll be like a mandated quarantine. It'll be you better stay home or else, you know, we're going to fine you. We're going to that's what it is in Turkey. You get a fine or prison time if you don't stay locked down for the 14 days. Not for being positive, just for coming into contact with somebody that one of the tracers has been told you came into contact with that's it producer mark does this sound like a good system to you do you do you think the people that brought you like the dmv for example are are going to be adept at at this program i mean if it's the people that ran the dmv then everyone's going to get covid somehow yeah they're terrible i think everyone's kind of figuring out that there's stopping the spread of this disease is not it's not even the plan really that's meaning the disease is going to spread no matter what we try to do. So what does that mean? I've thought this all along, but oof, man, it was so nice. Just be, we're just going to save everybody. We're just going to unite and save everybody, every single life. That's not what's happened. That's not what's happened. Um, Doug, let's not, let's not forget that Obama threw out the Russian diplomats just prior to leaving office. As prior military, you never do that. You don't start an international incident on your way out unless you're trying to force the new president to act. Doug, that's an interesting point. Obama only got tough with Russia after Hillary lost the election and when Trump was coming in to take over. And part of this, I think, was trying to solidify the one and one to create an acrimonious relationship, an antagonistic relationship between Putin and Trump, but also to give more more meat on the bone of this theory that there had been, uh, you know, 
Russia-Trump collusion and that Russia changed the course of the election and all the rest of the stuff we've, we've been told. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Obama got tough with Russia after the election and they made this. This came out too. they made a choice. Meaning the Democrats and the Obama administration made a choice to not make a big deal of what they said was the Russian interference behind the scenes in the election because they thought it would look bad. Well, meaning that, that it was like they were trying to throw the election to Hillary and it was a dirty trick against Trump. Well, that was a political calculation. They made a political... If the threat was so bad, it didn't matter. It shouldn't have mattered what the election implications would be, but they didn't want it to look like they were trying to throw it to Hillary because they were afraid of the backlash. Sorry. Political calculations have consequences too. Maureen. Hey, Buckster and producer Mark. As always, I love your show. Thanks for the hysterical Alex Jones clip. I'll eat your ass. I mostly use iHeartRadio to listen to your podcast. As on KEIB, The Patriot here in Southern California, it airs 6 to 9 p.m. So I prefer to listen to you earlier. Thanks to producer Mark for making that happen for us. Yes, yes, producer Mark makes fun things happen. Pluto TV works sometimes too, but I wanted you to know that your website is fantastic. The content is just superb. Do we have producer Mark to thank for its brilliant content or all these articles, blogs written by you, Buck? It's just so great. I love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much. Maureen, we have a team. Producer Mark is part of the team. We've got a few people that are working on the website. Much of the content is derived from the audio and the transcripts of the radio show every day. Um, but it is it is a team effort. And I am planning to start writing weekly columns for the website. That'll be exclusive content for the site. So the answer is yes, you can thank Producer Mark for it. Yes, there is a team of people working on it. So it's not just Mark and me. And yes, soon there will be um, original content from me in editorial form. That's not the audio of the radio, the podcast, or our transcripts. Uh, that will be up on BuckSexton.com. Am I leaving anything out, Producer Mark? No, you got it all, but I'm down with anybody, uh, you know, just saying I did it all. I'm okay with that. There we go. He's okay with that. He's all right with that. Chopper. Every time I see that name, I think of get to the chopper. But that's a different spelling, maybe. Hey, Buck, I was wondering if you, as a master of nice hair, could weigh in on a disagreement concerning a Halloween costume. I am endeavoring to dress up as Billy Ray Cyrus for Halloween. Thinking about that right now, man, Halloween's a ways off. <laughs> okay, though. People are I really eight- bored, Buck. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. I have 18 inches of long, straight hair. I'm thinking I have it cut into a mullet because authenticity is important to me. Respect. My girlfriend suggests a wig. It would preserve my hair, but not be quite as convincing. Where would you fall on the argument? You know what? I'm going to pass this. To, I'm going to pass this judgment call to producer Mark. Producer Mark, authentic mullet or wig mullet? I'm going to go with saying happy wife, happy life. Unless you're in some sort of competition where there is a monetary prize and not like $100, like a good enough monetary prize to screw up your hair like that and, and, and make yourself a mullet. Mm-hmm. I think he's right about happy wife, happy life. So yeah. whatever the wife wants you to do, that's probably a good move. Bruce and Mark has a wife, so any any uh, you know dude with a wife questions, he he's here to handle that. I I am unmarried, so I can't really speak from any experience. Yeah, but on that if one. Snow Princess told you to do something, you'd probably oh, do it yeah. right now. Oh yeah, happy Snow Princess, uh, happy Buckster, and the mm-hmm. opposite is also true. So uh, it's very important. I've seen this. I've seen this as a real thing. Happy wife, happy life is one of those phrases that you hear, and the longer you live, the more true you seem to recognize it, it, it recognize it as. So, yep. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, roll call continuing here. Glenn writes, hey, Buck, I listened to you on Boston's Talk 1200. And after hearing about how school systems were planning on using the 1619 project to teach history, I must admit I was very concerned. I was hoping you were going to follow up with how we can prevent this from happening. Would love to hear your thoughts, how we can collectively help. You know, Glenn, I've never been involved with my local school district. I don't have kids, so I, I don't know how much you can influence the school board or how really to do that. But I know it's possible. And I know that uh, there are public campaigns of pressure to be brought on issues like this. But you got to do organizing and you got to put in the, you know, put in the time and the effort to do it. And I'm sure it's going to be challenging. I mean, the progressives have a very clear agenda that they use the public schools to try and achieve. And they're not going to just say, oh, okay, well, you know, no problem. You guys don't like the 1619 Project being taught to our kids because it's full of a lot of incorrect history. No, they're not going to let that one go. You know, the the Pulitzer Prize is really meant to, in a sense, uh, intellectually launder the 1619 Project so that it's considered something that can be taught in schools. So it, it all adds up, right? They give this, this uh, narrative-building exercise that's highly ideological, a Pulitzer Prize, so then anyone years forward, years going forward, who says, wait, why is this being taught to my kid in school? Teachers will say, I'm sorry, you mean the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times 1619 Project? Pulitzer doesn't mean crap. All these awards... You know, once you get over the age of like 12, I mean, other than uh, other than, you know, military decorations, once you get over the age of 12, you know, these professional awards that are given out uh, for what? For what? What are we really doing? You know, I I remember when I, I was a kid, I was so proud. I had all these trophies I won from these different sporting events and sports camps, you know, first place in this swim race or first place in this track meet or whatever it was. You know, and I wasn't that good. So this is like when I was you know, 10 years old or something. But, you know, I had all these trophies. And then one day I realized, I was just like, what am I keeping all these pieces of plastic for? You know, once I basically got to be high school, high school age, college age, I was like, what is all this stuff? So, you know, I gave it away. Buck, you um, could admit they were participation trophies. No, I won stuff, producer Mark. I will not allow that blasphemy on this show, damn it. <laughs> I won tennis tournaments. I won some other stuff. Damn it. I'm going to say it, but, uh, oh, no, there were, I mean, were there, were there some partic- participation trophies mixed in there somewhere? I mean, you know, can neither confirm or deny, but there was some actual winning of stuff. Um, and actually, I had debate trophies. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about, you want me to be honest here. You want some nerding out. I had some debate trophies. That makes so much sense. Oof. Yeah, yeah got to keep those ones nice and shiny and new. Hey, honey, want to come upstairs for a wine cooler and uh, check out my debate trophies? It's not a line that did very well for me in college. I can say that much. Did not did not work. It's a shame. I can't shame. imagine why. Oh, you know. Oh, it's it's not quite as good as. Hey, I'm a professional athlete, and I'm going to show you, you know, my NFL championship ring or something. No, winning the Lincoln Douglas debate, 1999 for the New York High School, uh, you know, at uh, New York High School Debate Association. Nope. That did not bring in all the ladies. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it. No, no, that one did not make it all happen. But now now we've got to the point in the show where I get to tell you, unfortunately, that's it for today. But tomorrow we'll be back. Please do check out our website, 
Download the podcast. If you're not already subscribed, please subscribe. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com youtube.com slash Buck Sexton. Please subscribe there too. We'll be posting videos. And uh, team, we'll be back tomorrow. Shields high.